Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your dreams. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Meow Ludo Meow Meow chats with me about space, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, astrobiology and colonising Mars. But first up, here's news of reprogramming cells to heal. Programmed Healing. Researchers at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in California have found a way to reprogram cells at the site of a wound to heal more completely by making them into stem cells that become skin cells. Cutaneous ulcers are wounds that extend through several layers of skin. They can be caused by bed sores, severe burns or diseases like diabetes. When cutaneous ulcers get infected, they can lead to amputations or even death. Previously, they've been treated by covering the wound with a graft of the patient's own skin, but this isn't possible for large wounds. Alternatively, the doctors could take some of the patient's own stem cells and grow them in a dish, convert them to skin cells, and then transplant them onto the wound. This procedure is slow, dangerous for the patient, and often doesn't work. The new procedure applies a topical solution of four chemicals to turn mesenchymal cells from the wound that normally are only good for inflammation and closing the wound into basal keratinocytes that can build healthy new skin and fully heal the wound. In tests with mice, after 18 days, the wounds had closed and completely healed. Three to six months later, there was just healthy new skin and no scarring. The next step for the researchers is to put the procedure through safety testing and tests on larger animals before they can consider testing on humans. They hope that in the future, as well as healing wounds, the technique could also restore aged skin, help us understand skin cancer and heal other parts of the body. The paper was titled In Vivo Reprogramming of Wound Resident Cells Generates Skin Epithelial Tissue and was published in the journal Nature. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now a conversation with biohacker Meow Ludo Meow Meow about space. You're about to hear 20 minutes of a two-hour conversation we had at Meow's secret lair. If you listen closely, you can hear Meow vaping. The topics range from the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, realistic robots, growing plants in space, astrobiology, colonising Mars and Australia's space agency. 
I began the conversation by mentioning to Meow about how mobile phones all have FM radio chips inside, but hardly anyone downloads the apps to use them. Most people stream radio and podcasts instead of tuning into the broadcast. That reminded him of a conversation with Ian Morrison from the University of New South Wales Centre for Astrobiology about why we've been doing SETI wrong. He did two PhDs at UNSW and he's... Uh, one of the senior leads of the SETI project, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So I I took a class with him where we talked about how would we contact aliens? Yeah. It's really interesting, right? So he talked about the construction of a microwave frequency beacon. Yep. Um, And there's there's a lot of reasons for this that he went into that I won't get into now because I've forgotten. I've seen a talk on that, Uh, Gregory Benford. Oh, okay, yeah. So it's interesting the way that science and science fiction kind of, you know... Yeah, well, um, he does both. Gregory Benford, he's the writer. I didn't know that he's a scientist. Ah. He runs a company in Longevity. Mm. So, you know, the Methuselah Fly project? Yeah. He took them over when the university was going to chuck them out. Yeah. And then he got Ben Goetzel... Yeah, yeah. ...AI software to understand all the genetic networking. Did you see I met Ben Goetzel? Oh, when did you meet him? I met him in San Francisco last oh, year. Oh, there you go. Well, I interviewed him in Australia. Oh, did you? He's a cool guy. Cool Christ. guy. He's a very cool guy. We have to compare our, our questions we asked him. So I got him like eight years ago. Yeah. When he was here with Gregory Benford. I talked to him then in Melbourne. And then last year, I think it's last year when he first brought Sophia. Yeah. I spoke to him about all his stuff. Sophia now. and Open Cog is incredible. Really mm. interesting stuff. Now... But it looks uh, like a ventriloquist dummy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting the way that people prioritise different things. Like, looking at Sophia, yeah. it's really simple. But the thing is, the brilliance of Sophia isn't the physical. It's the no, it's coding totally. behind. It's uh, how they've dressed it. Doesn't it doesn't sound right. Like, I've seen a lot of people watch the conversations yeah. with Sophia and go, that's just pre-scripted. And yeah. Well, some of it is. Yeah. But not all of it is. No, and the thing is that it's like, how many... Like, when we're having a conversation... How much of our responses are like pre-scripted? That we've had a conversation where we've heard a certain point of view and then we parrot back an argument and then we yeah. check in with the other person to see how they respond. And the point of open cog is to change the pre-scripted answers, if that makes sense. And yeah. that's starting to approximate how we speak. Well, that's right. Yeah. And there's a certain amount of thinking that goes into there, but a lot of it is, is us slightly changing things over time to some kind of predetermined script, which is a result of logic, right? Yeah. Yeah. And th- that's what he's trying to do. It's brilliant. The thing is though, all the public sees is what does she look like? Um, and then she's got citizenship in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. <laughs> so the thing is that you can make, you could, you could, you could be like Jim Henson company and make this thing that looks super realistic. And it's probably going to like have a bigger impact on the public than all the open cog stuff that sits yeah. behind but it. But that's kind of the Sophia thing is he's pushing that it can read and reproduce yeah. facial expressions. That's so it. It's got facial expressions. Yeah. But then you look at the Japanese dude. What's his name? Um, oh, yeah. The guy that's copied himself. Yeah, right. And that kind of... Uncanny Valley stuff. Right, yeah. But that kind of is, in some ways, has a bigger impact because... Even though it's Absolutely. a direct copy of what he's yeah, saying, exactly. it looks more realistic, right? Um, so, jumping back to what we were saying before, we were talking about the radios inside of a mobile phone. Mm. As, te- as uh, technological civilization progresses, they go from high-energy, low-bandwidth communication to low-energy, high-bandwidth That's communication. That's exactly the argument, yep. And this is why we all listen to FM radio on an app on our phone instead of using the inbuilt 
uh, antenna. It's part of it, yeah, yeah. for sure. And, and we're seeing it, right? We've so, so that that was it. So I, mm. I've, I've heard this whole argument that basically we've been looking at SETI wrong. We've got mm-hmm. 1950s expectations mm-hmm. of the way broadcast and communications work. So we're looking for really loud beacons when any advanced civilization would only use those to get your attention and they yeah. wouldn't have a complex signal. And yeah. they go say, I'm over here. Now you're looking, look over here at this low energy one. And that's what we've got to look for. That's it. So yeah. it's really interesting. And when, when we said at the end, so, you know, these, these, these microwave beacons that we have and we know exactly how they'd be constructed and what they'd mm. kind of look like, why aren't we building them? And they're like, are you crazy? You know, tell everyone where we are. <laughs> <laughs> it's like... I mean, that's the whole steady thing. So the thing is that like, if it, and the thing is, we say, well, if we're not building them and no one's building them, even though we know how to construct them, the whole knowledge is useless because we wouldn't want to just advertise to everyone where we are. So the whole thing just goes out the window. But, you know, this is the what, uh, 2010s. Mm. In the 1950s, we had a completely different view. Where will we be in 70 years from now? Well, that's right. Also, the first really high-powered broadcast mm. from Earth mm. was the... Olympics that Hitler attended. This was in Sagan's contact. Yep. Right? And, it, and it's true. So that signal is sending out at the speed of light. Mm-hmm. That might be the first knowledge of our world that any aliens could decode. Yeah, well, I so guess... So we've got to counter that. The, 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 <laughs> the broadcasts that'll come out, at least it, like, it opens the story within an, an exciting way. We're, we're radio loud already. Yeah. So I think the cat's out of the bag. I think, I think so. I think the thing is we've got like sustained broadcast for a long time. Is, or, or just while we're talking, um, it does open up something really interesting that I've been following, which is astrobio. So astrobiology, I've been thinking a lot about it and where it's going and where the excitement is. Because, you know, Australia's about to get a space agency. Well, we have a space agency. We have it's pretty thin. It's catered heavily towards business. But they're taking a lot of submissions around... What types of things would you like from a space agency? And businesses are the main people who are doing this, but it could be something as simple as I have research that has a potential commercial outcome, but I would need this to research it. And I was lucky enough to go to Space Florida. Space Florida is a state version of what Australia has as a space agency. So it's looking for commercial outcomes. The governor of Florida is actually on the board of Space Florida, and they are an ex-NASA facility, and they have these awesome grow chambers. So they've got this huge warehouse with, let's say, two meter by four meter by two meters high rooms, which you can completely control the growing environment. So you can research agriculture on other planets, which I found just fantastic. And I was saying to the space agency here, like, why don't we have that? And they said, we're accepting submissions. So if and anyone has any ideas for stuff, like tell the space agency, they're really keen. And I think that uh, you know, some of the bigger companies have been searching my profile on LinkedIn and the key word was astrobiology. Mm-hmm. So there may actually be some emerging market that we're not aware of because these are big four accounting agencies investigating this. So that probably means that there is some commercial outcome to some of this that I'm not aware of because I'm not making any money. So, <laughs> but yeah, so I think this might be an exciting new market about to open. And I don't know if many of us know what that market looks like or what it might even be. So yeah, new avenues for pursuit of stuff. But um, yeah, I've been so heavily into looking into agriculture in space and long-term human habitation of space and there's a talk coming up at UNSW on the 17th of October 
uh, from 11 to 1 at, I think it's the Faculty of the Built Environment. And they've got okay. a researcher from America who's coming across to talk about long-term sustainable habitation of Mars. And that gets me all excited. There might be some money from Elon Musk. I highly doubt it. I think, I think uh, Elon is a bit of an idiot on the, <laughs> on, on the, re- on the record. Like, you know, I, I, I admire a lot of stuff he does just like everyone who's a fanboy. But also, who makes a solar panel company and flies away from the sun? Like, you think if he built, you know, all this electric stuff, all this solar stuff, he'd fly to Venus. Mm. Wouldn't you? You know, solar panels are twice as effective. He made this solar, power pa- uh, solar panel company and he flies away from the sun. They're four times less efficient, but maybe it's really good business sense because you can sell more of them. <laughs> but, you know, Mars is going to be powered by nuclear. Mm. yeah it's it, it makes sense basically once you get to saturn you you can't use solar power anymore like you look at juno this giant probe and it's got these huge solar panels on there the reason for that is that the american government doesn't want to buy plutonium from russia yeah. because it costs 100 million dollars a kilo we need helium-3 we do there's a lot of other power sources we can use helium-3 is fantastic i think for like two-year projects plutonium is perfect but you have to have an active nuclear weapons program to get enough of it. And America doesn't really have a super active nuclear weapons program anymore. So uh, yeah, just as a result of power generation, you generally won't get plutonium from my understanding. Yes, they have to buy it all from the, the Russians and they don't like that. The French have some breeder reactors, I think, in their power station. So you never know your luck. And I think China is bringing on a whole heap of uh, interesting nuclear options. So I, I, I think that they're looking into a whole heap of diversified uh, versions of nuclear reactors that are, yeah, breeder reactors, integral fast reactors, which I think might be a type of breeder. I could be wrong on that. And then you've got, uh, you've got thorium reactors and all these other crazy, you know, interesting alternatives. And I think it's, it's actually a very exciting time for nuclear. I saw a really negative talk at Orbit Oz with someone who wouldn't give me an interview. I really wish I'd recorded his talk. But basically, he was talking about asteroid mining. Mm. And he's, despite the fact he's very in favour of it, what his figures showed is that it's not profitable or not considered profitable enough by the mining companies unless they can sell it at the place they're mining it. Bringing it back adds too much expense. So they're very interested in a NASA Mars colony, US government Mars colony, because that would be a local customer for their minerals. But what they don't have in mind and what the US government doesn't have in mind is how that's paid for other than by taxpayers back at home. And if that's just a scam to at enormous expense to human lives to really just move money from one bank account in the US government to the mining company's bank account, can we just give them the money? <laughs> oh, oh, dear. Oh, dear. I think... A lot of these things get really complex as well when you're thinking about, you know, government getting involved with business. A good example is the economic collapse of America. Um, You know, they don't call it the great financial crisis because they're American. They've got exceptionalism. (laughs) It was just like uh, the Wall Street crash or whatever of, you know, 2007, 2008. And the rest of the world was reeling while this happened. But the economic conditions that lead up to that have worldwide underpinnings but also sometimes it is good to save the banks and sometimes it's not and sometimes it is good to save the mining companies and sometimes it's not and i think that's that becomes really complicated because on the surface it can see like seem like one thing whereas if you go digging underneath maybe it is a great thing and i think uh, the the thing to talk about is the the outcomes you get from different things rather than on paper it looked like we're just paying people off and i think with mining companies on earth they don't need any any more help sometimes banks too do but they also need 
if, if they make a series of mistakes because they've done things wrong, I think that you should socialize them. So if the government's going to pay a certain amount, then the government has more control to ensure these things don't happen in the future. Because I don't think out of the what happened in 2007, 2008, the checks and balances have been put in to stop those things from happening again. They certainly haven't done in Australia. You know, we're headed for a, a crisis like America had, just on a smaller scale, because the world weren't real when we're in economic freefall. <laughs> on, the, on the note of who funds space, it's a really interesting one, because the 1967 Space Treaty actually has provisions in there for people to establish a government in space, from my understanding, but not for them to go to space with the purpose of setting up independent government. So you can set it up, but you can't get people on Earth to say, we are going to space to set up a government. It has to be something that happens as a consequence of them living long-term in space. Uh, there's nothing that expressly prohibits anyone from declaring independence, but they can't go there with the purpose of that. Yeah, well, our Professor Stephen Freeland spoke at Orbit Oz last week about space law. Uh, I can add that to the list of questions I'll be asking him next time because, yeah, it's getting interesting because America's looking at breaking as many treaties as it can at the moment, and that's one of the treaties they want to break with Space Force because the peaceful use of space is explicitly what all the treaties are about, not putting military up there. On top of that, you know, you've got some really interesting actors who are signatories to the 1967 Space Convention, one of which being North Korea. All these people who you think is generally being lawless rogue agents or who, who have been told by media are, are lawless rogue agents are adherents and signatories to this treaty. What does it mean when a company like a country like America, a company, oh, Freud didn't slip, a country like America goes and you know, ignores UN, ignores human rights conventions, ignores space treaty. It spells, you know, bad, bad times for the world. And, and, and outside the world, it turns out. But um, I, think, I think this is a, a really interesting time maybe to revise some of these things because we are looking at doing things like colonizing Mars. And if anyone has watched or read any science fiction, at some point, the colony decides to form independence, as they probably should, as, as most colonies kind of do, Australia accepted. Um, the thing missing from the Mars colony descriptions that I've seen so far is what the purpose of the colony is other than having humans off Earth and other than just doing research, which, of course, won't make enough money to sustain itself. So normally, in the past when we had empires, colonies were about making money for the parent state. If it's not about making money for the parent state, where does all the money come from and why would you even go other than to escape Earth? So I, I think as a human race, probably the most important thing is about not having all of our eggs in one basket. If you know some disaster happens to Earth, do we have a backup plan? So I think there's, there's an imperative, a, gen, a genetic and biological imperative for that as a get-go. But um, I was reading some documents by a group called Kalis Partners and that they were two ex-military guys who actually went in and set up civilization when war had swept through and decimated everything. And they talk about eight stages to getting a kind of village set up or a civilization started from scratch. Really interesting guys to be talking about how do we do that on Mars. Now, the first four levels are about getting your basic needs met. But the fourth one is about economic self-sustainability. Now, the, the, the three levels beneath it are about food, shelter, rule, law, order, these things, but no village can be sustainable until it's economically self-sufficient. Now, that can be economically self-sufficient 
within itself, but it can also be to anywhere else because people have to basically have an ability to move up through these stages if they work hard and put in effort. This is the kind of idea that you can liberate yourself and form climb Maslow's hierarchy of needs as you climb their community hierarchy of needs. And basically the more robust the system is, the more that it can buffer change, the higher chance of success it has. And Mars is like, you know, a very bad place to do this because anything goes wrong, it's a disaster. So if you can get it to level four pretty much from the get-go, it has the greatest chance of success. And I think that that would be using Earth as a customer. I think the opportunities that it provides are around manufacturing. So utilizing the one thing that we can't ever emulate on Earth, which is low gravity. It's not as low gravity as a space station, but I think that you could actually set up some, some commerce there from the very beginning that could sustain research and keep a small population going there very, very early on if you were clever. At that point, though, you know, it's not long until people start saying, this is taxation without representation, you know, having a Boston Tea Party on Mars or something like that and trying, trying to bust free. This, this is the kind of the trope for everyone that writes about Mars is dreaming of Mars's independence. But I think it's like quite a way off. You have to get some serious commerce going on there before it can declare independence. And so far, the organizations that want to go to Mars, like SpaceX, don't even allow unions. Yeah, I think a lot of this stuff is kind of interesting because there's, there's the law and then there's the enforcement of the law. And you, you can say, oh, we, we won't have unions on Mars, but if the people who have the guns also believe in unions, then what is Elon Musk going to fly over there, drop down and take their guns away? It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Um, he can take a bigger force. He has a flamethrower. Yeah, that's right. He can take the space force. Maybe that's what Space Force is really for. How much is Elon Musk donating to the Republican Party? That's a question you have to ask, I guess, then. But I, 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 think, it, I think as well, it's a really interesting time for space all around the world. You know, we, we're, we keep on hearing things like, in the next 20 years, space will be a trillion dollar industry. But 20 years is a long time to predict, and a trillion dollars is a lot of money. That's like, you know, not far shy of Australia's GDP, so, so that's quite a lot of money. It, it, is this a reality? And I, I, I think it could be, but I don't, I, I don't know whether I necessarily believe that just because of the, the motivations of the world's politicians that we see now. So one of the problems with Australia's laws that they just amended, they just passed the bill like a week ago that Stephen Freeland was looking at, the professor of law from the University of Western Sydney, he was saying that the laws were framed in the 80s, the last time we changed them, when only giant corporations would launch anything. They would only launch giant satellites because that's how electronics used to be. And they planned, they expected that Australia would be a launch site for the world, that we would have lots of space launches happening here because we're near the equator, so it's cheaper to launch from here. But of course, that industry never happened here because the Australian government got ripped off by some con men when they tried to build a spaceport, and because they've been burned by that, they've never wanted to do anything like it ever since. So there's no spaceports here yet, although there's two private ones that are looking into getting built. And as a result, the laws were wrong, and there's the ability to get a licence for launching overseas, but it's super expensive and you need massive insurance and the idea that it's going to be tons that you're sending up and tons that would fall on people if it went wrong. So if you're sending up 
CubeSats, little tiny mobile phone sort of based things, you've got to pay too much money, which has restricted the market. So they're changing all of that with this amendment mm. to make it easier for small companies to do it with small launches. But that's not enough to actually stimulate the industry. One of the things that NASA does is they train experts and they inspire people by doing interesting science. And the first thing the government said when they announced the space industry is, we're not going to do interesting science. We're never going to send people up. We're not going to be NASA. So it's taken this long for them to work out what they will do. It sounds the least possibly inspiring space industry body ever. That's what happens when you get a liberal government in charge for too long. Um, to, to, be on, to be honest, though, like, you know, it still costs $10,000 if I want to send something up overseas. The businesses in Australia have succeeded in spite of all these regulations. I think it's important for Australia to have a space program that, that is more than just removing regulation around space. You know, in New Zealand, I think it costs... $500 or $50 for a launch certificate as long as you fire east. <laughs> I think we should do the same thing. New Zealand be damned. <laughs> we can also fire east. That was Meow Ludo Meow Meow talking about space. You can check out his work at the BioFoundry at foundry.bio. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your own voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. I need to interview more scientists and engineers for Diffusion. If you're a researcher or you're doing something interesting in the science and technology space, send me an email at science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com and we can have a chat over Skype. You could be on the show. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound and fact checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia, to 26 stations on the Community Radio Network, including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, eight Triple C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, two NVR in Nambucca Valley, three MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, seven LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania, and my local station, 2RDJ, in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. And if you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes. Archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel, youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. 
When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.